Welcome to the Meb Faber Show, where the focus is on helping you grow and preserve your wealth. Join us as we discuss the craft of investing and uncover new and profitable ideas, all to help you grow wealthier and wiser. Better investing starts here. Meb Faber is the co-founder and chief investment officer at Cambria Investment Management. Due to industry regulations, he will not discuss any of Cambria's funds on this podcast. All opinions expressed by podcast participants are solely their own opinions and do not reflect the opinion of Cambria Investment Management or its affiliates. For more information, visit cambriainvestments.com. Welcome, podcast listeners. Today, we have a fantastic show for you with one of our most fascinating guests. He's kind of a real-world, most interesting man. Prolific writer. You've seen his stuff in New York Magazine, Esquire, New York Times. He's written a dozen books, including a bunch of New York Times bestsellers, including one of my favorite books, The Only Investment Guide You'll Ever Need, which has sold more than a million copies. He's been a part of all sorts of other stuff, anti-smoking campaigns in Russia, insurance reform in the U.S. Our only guest that's appeared on Letterman, Johnny Carson, and Oprah. We couldn't be happier to have him here today. Welcome, Andy Tobias. Well, thank you very much. Good to be with you. Andy, thanks so much for taking the time out. You mentioned briefly that you're getting ready to go to Costa Rica. And and I was going to say, I had one of the scariest days of my life in Costa Rica, where when I graduated from university was trying to surf in Dominical, and I'm a terrible surfer, as our podcast listeners know, and my leash broke. And I was I learned a lot of lessons that day. Never never get in way over your head. So th- thank you for taking the time before you're heading down there. Do you, do you spend much time in, in Costa Rica in general? No, my I, I grew up in Manhattan, and so my general philosophy is if it's not paved, it's not safe. So where there are bugs and nature and things, I get nervous. So things like zip lining. And surfing, which I totally get, would be wonderful if I were not such a wuss. I had a nice dinner in Dominical, but no, Costa Rica is a wonderful country. As you as you know, it's one of the few without any army. It's part of their constitution, and they are a peaceful and literate and wonderful people. But no, I'm not a. <laughs> I'm not going to be uh, trekking to waterfalls and over high bridges and uh, all that kind of stuff. Pura Vida, as the locals will say, and podcast listeners, are the biggest takeaway from this podcast, get some Lozano sauce. It's Costa Rican sauce. It's the best thing on the planet. All right, let's get to, we got so much that we want to talk about today, things I'd love to get into. You've got such a fascinating background across a lot of fields, but let's start with investing and let's, let's go back in time to your childhood. I remember, much like for many investors, a lot of formative experiences growing up, whether it's your parents or starting to learn to invest. Tell me a little bit about setting the stage for how you originally started thinking about investing. I know you talked in one of your books or interviews about investing in maybe stamps or first issued stamp something or others as a first experience. Maybe talk to us a little bit about that before we get into some other topics. Well, I guess I'm, I'm sort of a collector, a competitive. I like to keep score. When I was five, my my folks gave me five dollars for my birthday, and when I was six, they gave me six, and when I was seven, they gave me seven, and I sort of saw what was <laughs> what was going on here and tried to. You can't save a whole lot of money from five dollars, but I like numbers and I like to see them grow. So when I was about ten and my brother was fourteen, our uncle Lou, who was kind of our rich uncle, he gave each of us I don't remember what, but I think. 10 shares of General Dynamics and 10 shares of General Motors and one other Alcoa or something, we would look at the stock pages every day and nothing ever happened, you know, and go up an eighth or a quarter, down an eighth or a quarter back when 
stocks were quoted in fractions and all that. And it was boring, but it was still kind of exciting. And, and they did go up a little bit. So I, we had a little sense of that. Stamps, it was so fun to collect stamps and first day covers and all that. And I would probably, some of your listeners have the same sort of parental dynamic. I would come down after adding up the value of all the different stamps and organizing them and looking at the catalog. And I would come down and I would say to my parents, guess how much my stamp collection is worth? You know, I'm 11 years old or something or 12 years old. In fact, it was worth $91 or something. And my father would say, I don't know, 2000 bucks, And I would feel so small. And my mother would say, I don't know, $14? And I would feel so big. But I didn't get involved really. This was all background. I, I wound up going to taking three months behind the Iron Curtain when I was 16 and came back a little communist to my parents' horror. And then I went to college. And a week before school started, I got involved in the student businesses. And that was the end of communism. And I wound up running the student businesses in college. So that's when I really got involved and interested. And, and my stock options at that for my first job when I was 21 went from the stock went from six to 140 in, in 18 months. And I was a little millionaire, age 21, sort of on paper. And then it turned out it was six months to go before I could exercise my options that the creative accounting the company was practicing was so creative because uh, that was a good thing back then. In the late 60s, you were supposed to do creative accounting. But ours was so creative, you could really only barely term it fraudulent accounting. So the president went off to jail and I went to business school and wrote a book about it. And from then on, people thought I knew something about money and and they've been buying these books ever since. So lucky me. So Andy, we actually did maybe six months ago, I can't remember, I, I sent out an article to our readers, podcast listeners that said, all right, send me your single one favorite investing book. If you just had to give someone just one book and yours was congrats was one of the top books. And so I reread it again. And the really fun part about this book and listeners will post links to, to the show notes for all these things we talk about today. One of the, the best things about the book was one, the original content was great written in 1978, I believe, but it's really fun also to read the new edition because it looks back on a lot of the examples you gave. And I was laughing over coffee this past week because you started out the book talking about how investors used to invest in Mexican bonds because they had paid a higher interest but never considered the currency risk. And fast forward so many years later, what happened in Iceland and a lot of countries during the financial crisis where people were taking on a lot of risk in other countries. And it's just, I just smile because it's like 40 years later, nothing has changed. But so let's talk about it. So the original parts of the book, and I'm going to quote you and then let you run with it. You described it as, live beneath your means, get off the debt treadmill, minimize your transaction costs, trust no one. This book attempts to take you through it all from buying tuna in bulk to avoiding variable annuities. So let's talk a little bit about the thesis of the original book in the ensuing decades. What has really been kind of any main changes, any thoughts? Is the thesis remain constant throughout? Sure. Well, the basic idea is that there are just a few things you really need to know about investing. They don't ever change. The problem is it's hard to uh, get people to really grab onto them. And so there's nothing original in my book, but I tried hard to make it fun and interesting and, and vivid in some ways. And the, the analogy I use is it's not like cooking or chess or most other things where the more books you read, the better 
within limits you get. You become a better chess player, better at gardening, whatever it is. With investing, there are just some basic things to know. Keep your transaction costs low. Don't put all your eggs in one basket. You know, these are amazing original insights. I'm sure no one ever thought of that before I came up with it, right? And the basics. And beyond that, if you read more books, you actually can wind up getting yourself in big trouble. I always use the example of commodity speculation. All I say about commodity speculation in the book is that if you do it, you're almost sure to lose your money. And then I take another paragraph to explain why, so that you believe that first sentence. And that's all you really need to know about commodities. But if you read a book or two about it, it's such an interesting game. And we all like games, or at least a lot of us do. And it kind of becomes irresistible. And, and of course, the books that you read aren't going to tell you that you're going to lose money. They're going to show you the amazing way to turn $10,000 into a million dollars in three weeks and all that kind of stuff. So there's some risk that you'll actually do it and you'll take your $10,000. And if you're really unlucky, it'll grow to 20,000 after a week and then you're hooked. And then eventually you will lose your money. A couple of your listeners are really good at this and they work in ways that maybe they actually have made money, but it's at the expense of almost everybody else listening. If they speculate in commodities because it's a zero sum game or actually a little worse than that, because of the transaction costs. Anyhow, so it's this basic stuff, but the book, this wasn't my idea to call the book this. I said something about it. I, I want it to be the only investment guide they'll ever need. And they said, yes, yes, that's the title. So the book, which came out in 1978, called The Only Investment Guide You'll Ever Need. And it is so embarrassing to have to revise it and revise it. And revise. Every five or six years, they do something crazy like gold is no longer set at $35 an ounce by law or they invent the internet, or on and on and on. Uh, things happen. The tax code changes. So when the book first came out, the top federal bracket was 70%. I think you know it's changed a little bit. So every five or six years, I revise it. But I got to tell you, it is so much fun for me because much of it, literally, word for word, has not changed. And maybe some of the examples are getting a little stale, but many of the anecdotes are just as real now as they were 40 years ago, and so I don't change them. On the other hand, of course, tons of stuff. Roth IRAs didn't exist. IRAs didn't exist. Index funds didn't exist. So it's up to date until I have to revise it again. You know, it's funny. And, and I was going to laugh because as soon as you gave that first advice or paragraph, say, all right, we can just end the podcast because that's simple advice. Everyone should take it. But we got lots more to talk about. But a funny example, our friend Jason Zweig, a you know, writer, he says, my job is to write the same message, but write it hundred times in an interesting way that, that people will continue to read it because the simple stuff is, is really easy. I, I was smiling as you were describing the commodities portion because every three, five years, a new shiny object comes on that fascinates the investor populace and gets swept up in, whether it's internet stocks in the late 90s, whether it's the bricks in the mid 2000s and commodities. And you're probably going to have to update it in a few years again now and talk about Bitcoin, cryptocurrencies Bitcoin. And, and marijuana stocks, right? <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. The first bubbles that people, they know about the tulips and they know about the Mississippi company and it's always something. And so you just want to sort of learn the right habits and, and get used to recognizing things that are too good to be true. And obviously we'll make mistakes. I'm constantly making mistakes, but you can be smarter than the average bear because the average bear isn't that smart. So we talk a lot about what stayed constant and the simple basics of living beneath your means and not getting a bunch of debt and a simple low cost asset allocation. Those are all great long term horizons. Is there anything that's actually you've changed your mind on a lot 
or even a little over the past, say, 30 years, where you say, you know what, this is actually, in my opinion, is quite different from the first time in the book, or maybe it's just evolved or changed quite a bit. Is there anything that really sticks out? Not too much. I, I guess somewhat responsive to that notion is I'm a big fan of A Random Walk Down Wall Street, the famous book that basically says everything is already baked into the price of the stock unless you're doing insider trading and willing to risk going to jail. So there's no point trying to beat the market. And for almost everybody, that really is true because one of the smartest things I ever heard was from a big famous investor, Mike Steinberg, who he was asked, what's the, what's the best advice you can give average people? And he thought about it for a second and he said, I'm their competition. So even if Warren Buffett clearly can beat the market, and a guy named Peter Lynch used to do all this, and there, there are people who can beat the market, almost everybody cannot. And even some of the ones who, this wouldn't apply to Warren Buffett or Peter Lynch, but, but some who do tremendously well for a long time, they blow up. It turns out that things go against them. They use too much leverage. I know I have a friend who ran a million and a half dollars into 85 million. He's brilliant probably on the Asperger's spectrum someplace. He is so smart and focused and all that. And one night he forgot to hedge a position and lost all $85 million. So it's not an easy game. Having said that, I love to look for these crazy little special opportunities or special situations, which because they're so small, typically, most people aren't paying any attention to. And I think sometimes you can get an edge. So in the book, I suggest that if you're fascinated by this and you actually like to play a little bit, it's not stupid to put maybe 80% of the money you want exposed to the stock market. Keep that in very low expense index funds, that sort of thing. But with maybe 20%, I mean, let's say you have a $300,000 that you want to have in the stock market. Take 30 of it of the 300 or even 40 or 50 and spread that over five or six really interesting speculations that you're excited about, not all at once, but as, as you come to hear about them, that's not necessarily dumb because two or three or four, or maybe all five of them are going to go to zero. If they all go to zero. That's not so great. But the ones that you lose money on, you can take, I think it's still $3,000 a year. You can take against your uh, ordinary income. But if one or two really hit, even if you wind up breaking even so that the money you lost in the bad ones is only broken even on the, on the good one or two, and hopefully you do a lot better than break even. But even then you come out ahead because the good ones are either lightly taxed as long-term capital gains, or you use that to fund the same charitable giving you would have done anyway through a, something like the Fidelity Gift Fund or Schwab has one and a couple others have them. And so by tax control, which you don't have exactly in a mutual fund, it's a way to have the odds a little bit with you and also to satisfy that need a lot of us feel to have something more exciting to do than just the index funds. There's no question. We, we actually talk a lot about that on the podcast where people have, whether it's genetic, whether it's behavioral, whatever it is, just that gambling itch or that itch to, to be involved. And it's good in some sense. You know, I, I say, look, if it keeps you interested and aware and involved, as long as you're aware of all your behavioral biases that we have, and you mentioned the worst possible thing that could happen to a young investor is probably they go invest in something and it goes up 100% or 10x or whatever it is, because then they think they're brilliant and it's, it's going to repeat over and over. And then they get taken to the woodshed. 
There's so many gems in there, what you're talking about, even some of the richest people in the world. I remember the Brazilian commodity investor and CEO, Batista, who at some point I think was top five wealth in the world, then eventually went to, I think, zero, but, but, but from 35 billion. A lot of different lessons in what you talked about. But let's talk a little bit about your speculative bucket. Is, is there any sort of process? I remember reading in the book, you mentioned screens from Joel Greenblatt. Is it something where you kind of are just totally discretionary and, and kind of picking stocks for, for fun that you think are interesting? Is there any sort of quant screens? Is it your buddy down the street? What's, what's the kind of personal process for you? It's much more opportunistic. Uh, Joel Greenblatt, who you mentioned, is is brilliant and amazing and so logical, and it's all tremendous amount of analysis. But I'll I'll give you two examples of I mean so many different examples, but one that I'm high on a little more than a year ago, a young guy at a conference, not an investment conference, just a general sort of thing. We had a little panel, and he was he was talking about this. I knew nothing about it. The it's a company called Support.com. The symbol is S P R T. And apparently, it was a pretty big company and just went horribly wrong. And so they have $120 million in net operating losses, which conceivably could be valuable in some way someday by carrying them forward and don't have to pay tax on profits. But it was a basket case. And that's not of interest. But what was of interest, and the reason this young guy started talking to me about it, and I learned more about it, and by now I have a lot of this, is first off, they have a, a whole new CEO came in and a whole new management team and bought a bunch of the stock themselves cheap and a value player hedge fund kind of person got into it. And so it's a whole new team and their goal was to stop the bleeding. And if they could stop the bleeding, the, the stock at the time was about three. And by the time I saw it, it was about two and a quarter. Today, it's about 270. And they had about $2.75 a share in cash. So if they could stop the bleeding and didn't lower the amount of cash, you're getting the company for free. It's almost like a Ben Graham kind of deal. And sure enough, they have been able to stop the bleeding. So they have something like $2.75 in cash. I haven't counted the money myself. and I don't know what's happened in the last few months, but something like that. And they have a business that conceivably is going to be worth one times revenue or something, which would be another three bucks. And they've got these net operating losses. So at a time when the stock market is high and seems to me have maybe more risk than reward, although who knows what's going to happen, but today isn't such a good day for the market, down 350 or something as, I, as we speak. But to buy a stock that has as much cash as you're paying for the share Probably. It's, I mean, it could go to zero. Anything could happen. They could do a terrible job. There could be some crazy thing happen. But probably that's in the long term sort of a floor, at least potentially. So it's pretty conservative. But if you add the value of what might be the value of the company of 3 or $4 on top of the 275 you've doubled your money. And so my hope, I, who knows, but my hope with this, I like it a lot. So I, I have a bunch of it. I'm hoping that at a time when the, the bank pays the tenth of a percent interest or whatever, and I think they're. I'm getting these excited ads where we have a one percent CD. Wow, <laughs> you know, one percent. If I got lucky with this, and, and it doubles in the next year or two, that's the kind of thing I like. Clearly, no guarantees. And in my my little daily blog, I always, whenever I make a suggestion, I always say, only with money you can truly afford to lose. Because believe me, I, and I've lost 
my readers money on any number of things that didn't work out the way I hoped, and this one may not either. But anyway, so that's one end of it. That's a great example. I mean, that that falls in my mind kind of, like you mentioned, under a gram screen or special situations. That used to be a method back in the day when I was discretionary that would be a, a screen for a lot of biotech companies. Same sort of thing is how much cash do you have? What's the kind of worst case scenarios for a lot of these stocks that are either losing money or right at break even or, or even slightly making money? I was laughing a couple times during your example, because one, when, when I was watching a lot of old videos of you, by the way, with some of the interviews and, and, and when you're on Letterman, and my favorite part, sorry to say, wasn't the actual interview, is the commercials, because it was such a, a good example of the times. And there was commercials for pantyhose, which young listeners, by the way, is essentially like spanks for a generation ago. But the comments you make were times where interest rates were high single digits, low double digits. It's just such a different investing world than today, where essentially rates are coming up, at least on the short end, but nothing like a world when you could have bought a 10% bond and just retire on the interest. This is a little bit tangential, I wanted to mention earlier. Is there anything about the environment, you talk about it in the book, and you've seen so many different cycles to where the basic advice, we had a pretty big market cap bubble in the late 90s, and we've seen other ones like Japan in the 80s, where markets get pretty far out of whack. Is there anything in general, the advice you think of, is it just you asset allocate and rebalance? Is it you consider taking some chips off the table with valuations? Do you not look at broad valuations at all and stay focused on the bottom up? Do you have, do you have any general thoughts there? Well, I'm not a professional money manager, and I, I understand what asset allocation is, of course, and, and I've done a little writing about some of that. But I don't really think of it that way. First of all, the big frame to me, the really big frame, is that we are at a time of crazy low interest rates historically and an all-time record high stock market. If you started investing in 1982, for example, when I got to interview the chairman of the Federal Reserve and he was trying to keep the world from ending, and uh, the Dow was 777, and the treasuries were yielding 15%, you'd have a pretty good run as interest rates gradually came down from 15% to what are they now? One or two percent, and as the market went from 777 to 26,000, I clearly don't expect to, <laughs> and hope it's not going to reverse. It's never going to be uh, 777 again. I I hope, but interest rates aren't going to get a lot lower, and at some point, could be a long time from now, but or it could be starting tomorrow. It's already sort of started, beginning to creep up a little bit, but over the next 10, 20, 30 years interest rates could get back to more normal levels. And when that happens, first of all, bonds, including super safe things like treasuries, but if they're long-term treasuries, they're levered by the maturity. The value of bonds, I would never buy long-term bonds here, except some crazy speculative things that aren't really like bonds. You, you could speculate in Puerto Rico bonds, 25 cents on the dollar, if you have some reason to do that, but that has nothing to do with an actual It's not really bond investing. So bonds are a bubble, in a sense, or at least something I just don't have any in my asset allocation. And the normal, the regular kind of index fund, the S&P 500 or whatever stocks, they may continue to go up at a steady, modest rate for years and years and years. That would be great. But it doesn't usually work that way. Usually every so often and often out of blue, you get a, a really bad time and then it will recover. But I'm not in 
lots of big cap stocks. I, I have much of my stuff is illiquid and private kinds of deals that are fascinating. And if they work out, some of them could make the world better, which is a good reason to invest. Andy, that's a great segue. And I, I want to get into that because there's two things you and I share in common. One, growing interest in private investing. I, I've been doing a fair amount. I've been talking listeners through this since 2014. And you're also a farmer. Do you still own your farm in Iowa or is that long gone? <laughs> no, it's long gone, but it was what an, what, I was so lucky. That opportunity doesn't happen very often. But in 1986 or 87, whenever Chernobyl went radioactive in the Ukraine, which is the used to be the breadbasket for Soviet Union and so on. Ukraine went radioactive. I was talking to a much smarter friend of mine. Actually, her name is Laura Sloat. She's kind of famous. She's, she's blind and has been a legend on Wall Street, even though she can't see. She is quite a successful investor and a professor and so on and so forth. So Laura, what are you doing these days? And she said, well, I just bought a farm. I said, what? <laughs> in 1986, you bought a farm. You live, she lived in Manhattan. I didn't see her farming a whole lot. But she explained that Chernobyl kind of reminds us that food is something that's probably not going to go out of fashion. And this was a time, almost none of your listeners will, are old enough to remember, but this was a time that prices were so low for corn and soybeans and all that, that farmers were going bankrupt left and right. And there was even a caravan of tractors. They drove, I don't know how many hundreds or thousands of tractors drove all the way to Washington to protest and to ask for more price supports and so on. And so farms were going for very, very low prices. So I hung up with Laura and thought about it and remembered that I had given a speech for the, the Security National Bank in Sioux City, Iowa. They had me out there to do my thing. And there were really nice people, but I I couldn't imagine they would remember me. I, so I called him up. I said, you remember a couple of years ago you had me? Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. I said, well, look, I'm really embarrassed even asking this because the last thing I want to be is some sort of a New York City vulture taking advantage of people's misfortune. But would it be awful to buy a farm? And they said, no, no, no. We, we want outside investment and we have people really trying to sell and we need buyers. And I said, well, if I did it, is there some way I could, I mean, I'm not going to go out there and manage it. Is there, so no, we have a whole department. That's what we do. We're an Iowa bank. We have a whole department that manages farms for investors. So I wound up buying 294 acres of what I came to learn was the technical term for it is really bad ground, really bad soil, but it was good enough to grow. I think we got 85 bushels of corn per acre, kind of year in and year out typically. And I learned that's not 85 bushels with the husks and the tusks and the things. That's just the kernels. I mean, it's unbelievable. So I had so much fun with my farm manager, who was this wonderful guy, just by email and on the telephone. I only saw the farm once, but I learned about my, he said, well, your corn is leaning because the winds and my corn is leaning, you know, <laughs> can you prop it up? Or what? So it was fun, but I got in when it was so low and they, and I, I don't like a lot of debt, but this was a mortgage just against the farm itself. So the actual cash involved was like 20, 20% or something. I wound up over 20 years, the cash on cash return from the, just the rent from the farmer was great. And then I paid, I think $500 an acre and I sold for $3,000 an acre, but I was buying at a time when nobody in his right mind would buy farmland. That's why it was so cheap. That, that's a universal sort of investment 
axiom, right? When there's blood in the streets, when everyone hates it. For for longtime listeners, farmland certainly in the early '80s just got decimated. And so, Andy, we, my father's side of the family, grew up on a farm in Nebraska. No running water, no indoor plumbing. Eventually, moved to Kansas, where a lot of our family on that side still still resides and, and does farming. And so, when my father passed years ago, we we inherited some farmland. And so, I've been a very longtime student of growing up on the farm and kind of witnessing. And like any asset class, goes through many cycles. But we tweeted a few years ago that farmland particularly as a lot of institutions got interested, was one of the best performing asset classes really since the period you're you're describing, the 80s, 90s, and 2000s. It's come off a little bit in the last few years, but it's also a notoriously hard asset class for people to allocate to. There's not really any real estate investment trust publicly. It's really a private investment. And we had another guy that was doing blueberry farms down in South America on the podcast. It's certainly an uncorrelated asset class, but a traditional one that's pretty hard to allocate to. That's a fun study. So while we're in this private realm, private investing, and that can mean venture capital, it can mean angel investing. On the institutional side, it can mean leverage buyouts. There's a lot of kind of different phrases for it, but it's increasingly becoming blurred. On the past decade, we've seen a lot of companies, particularly now, people talk about the tech unicorns that stay private for much longer. Uber, at whatever their current valuation is, it's called $40 billion, still being a private company, has caused a lot of investors to reignite their interest in private investing. What's kind of your experience? What's your process? Are, are you doing it same sort of process with public equities? Or is it more cause driven? Are you looking for the 100x home run grand slam? What's what's how do you think about that world? Well, uh, I'm lucky enough to know enough people and, and somehow be exposed to, of course, I'm never exposed to the really, the really great things, but people are forever suggesting things. And I have lost so much money in so many things with good intentions. Very few have been, one or two might have been a little you know, sketchy in terms of their morality, but just good attempt that failed. But others worked. And I'll give you a couple examples of two that are where the results are now known. I have many others where I'm dying to know what's going to happen, and I'm eager to tell you about those too. But one day, maybe, I don't know, 15 or 20 years ago now, I was at a conference thing between Christmas and New Year's, a general social sort of thing, or it wasn't a financial thing. And a friend of mine, or an acquaintance at least, who was a, a business professor at Yale, smart guy with crazy professor kind of hair and all that, he's walking down the hall and he sees me, he says, Andy, you got a second? Sure. And he's carrying one of these kind of soft-sided uh, briefcases, almost like a student used to take to school. He says, do you like iced tea? I said, yeah, I like iced tea. He pulls out this bottle of iced tea, except it wasn't iced. It was in his briefcase. And he said, I'm starting this company and take a taste. So the bottle looked pretty good. And I liked the name. The name was Honest Tea. And, you know, honesty is the best policy. And do you want to buy equity and honesty and all this kind of stuff? And the label looked good. But I took a sip. It was terrible. It had, he, he said, it's great. It's so, it's so healthy. There's no sweeteners. And it's sourced from, I don't know, the uh, rainforest of something or other. And so I didn't like the tea at all. But I knew he was really smart. And I can't resist stuff like this. I love getting it on the ground floor and all that. So I was one of the first investors in, in this honest tea. Not a huge amount of money. And actually, they, one of the lessons was the valuation that they were letting us come in at, even though it was 
virtually it was basically friends and family sort of thing it was way high and so anyhow a lot of your listeners probably either drink honest tea or see it coca-cola wound up buying the thing and it's everywhere and i still like it if you can get the glass bottle ones those are in health health stores the the best ones are the cinnamon sunrise and the ginger one but it went from this guy's briefcase and they were making like a thousand cases is all they had made and now coca-cola distributes it probably all over the world but Certainly, it's everywhere in the U.S. So that one worked out. It wasn't a, nothing like 100 times. It was probably three or four times at the end of the day because the valuation on the way in was so high. But that was a good one. That's a great example. It's funny thing about private investing because I've kind of changed my colors on it over the years. So your, your method here was almost, you mentioned Peter Lynch earlier, is kind of invest in what you know, despite, despite the fact it tasted terrible, but you like the person, you were interested. You know, I think that's a great way for uh, at least an a introductory screen. But one of the benefits of private investing that I've come to appreciate is actually a feature that people had considered a negative, which is the f- the fact there's no liquidity. And the reason being is that you can't sell it. And so many of the behavioral biases people have with stocks is that when they start going down or there's a bear market, they end up puking it all out and they sell it. They can't take anymore. It's painful. But with a lot of the private investments, you're stuck until there's a liquidity event. So I actually think that's a pretty good thing rather than bad thing. Are there any others that actually come to mind or anything that's particularly interesting today? Let me tell you, so the other, another success that's finished, and then it'd be maybe more fun to tell you about some of the ones that are brewing, but the bookend of that, where the valuation I get in was very low, and I did make 50 or 100 times, but was very similar in the sense that it was completely unplanned. It was almost as random as this, just seeing this guy in the hallway. A friend called me, this is a long time ago, a friend called and said, hey, there's a, some kind of show playing around the corner from you at a high school theater. It's supposed to be very funny. It's five bucks. Do you want to go? Well, I had five bucks even back then. It was a long time ago. And okay, sure. So we go around the corner and we saw a thing called nonsense. And it was ridiculous and sophomoric. It's a it's a musical comedy about putting on a talent show to to raise the money to bury fifty two dead nuns who had eaten the poison vichyssoise. And the little sisters of Hoboken were putting on this fundraiser, and that's the show. But it's a ridiculous show, but so much fun. And the audience loved it. And we were just everywhere. Just like tears laughing. So when the thing was over, I said to my friend, why is this in a high school? Why isn't this off Broadway someplace? And $49 instead of five bucks. And he said, well, it's funny you mentioned that. They're trying to do that. Do you want to meet the producer? He's here. To this day, I don't know if it was a setup. And I, I, probably not because I didn't have any money to speak of. I had invested in, in Broadway shows before, but you know, like $1,500, and you always lose your money, but it was a tax write-off. And back then, between the federal, state, and city taxes, it was Uncle Sam and New York paid 77% of the loss. So I was used to that. So the producer came over. I said, so you're trying to move it off Broadway. What's the overall capitalization? And I knew enough about this stuff to figure that it's probably about three quarters of a million dollars. Again, this is many years ago. And he said 150. And I thought to myself, really? Wow, that like that makes my odds five or six times as good in case it works because I'm getting in at a $150,000 valuation instead of a quarter million. And I said, well, how much of that have you got? And he said, we have 125, we have 25 to go. And basically, it was a little bit more drawn out than this, but basically I said, 
well, look, this is crazy and so much more than I've ever put into anything, something as crazy as a Broadway show. But if I did the whole 25 so you could just be done with raising money and you could do it, I know that normally, and please forgive me if this is incredibly indelicate or I don't want to offend you, but I know normally that for every 1% of the show you put up, after you get your 1% back, then you get half a percent of the profit. If I did the whole thing, the total 25 so you could get going, could I have, in case it makes a profit, could I have instead of half a percent for each 1%, could I have the whole percent for each 1%? And he said, sure. <laughs> and I, I love him to this day for having said that. So I, I doubled my odds again because, I mean, I assumed it wouldn't make money, but if it did, I was going to get twice as much as you normally get. So it wound up playing for, it's still playing some places, but I, I wound up getting my little piece for 25 years. It played in, I think on four or five continents, and it had a spinoff called Meshuganans and another one called Nonsense Amen, and on and on and on. So, I mean, how planned is that in your asset allocation? Uh, you go to a show, you think it's funny, you get a great deal, and yeah, that's paid for a lot of mistakes, nonsense. Well, and that's the way a lot of private investments work. In public as well, there's a great study my friends did at Longboard Capital. JP Morgan has done this. There's a new academic white paper that came out that talks about, even in the public market, a very small percentage of stocks account for essentially all the gains. And I think it's even as low as like 10 or 20% of all stocks account for all the gains because you have these massive winners. It's it's capitalism where you have the Coca-Colas, the Walmarts, the McDonald's, the Amazons, Apples of the world yep. that have these multi hundred or thousand percent returns. And that's why indexing works. But that's also the same thing in the private world. The challenge in the private world is often a lot of investors, individuals, the mistake they make is they place too few bets. And so uh, in many cases, if you're only betting on two, four, six private investments, all of them may go to zero. Whereas if you put small bets on a number and you have that 10 bagger, that unicorn, that makes up for all of them. By the way, I live in Los Angeles in Manhattan Beach. And so investing in movies and TV, and, and I, I'm a pleasant watcher. I, I love my friends that are doing it. But to, to date, I'm uh, it's not something I'm involved in. I'm too scared. Same thing with restaurants. I mean, you're absolutely right. You, you don't want to own a boat yourself. You want to have friends with boats and bring them a very nice bottle of champagne or something and get invited on the boat. And you don't want to invest in movies or Broadway plays or whatever, unless you absolutely prepared to lose your money and the odds are stacked against you because normally you don't get 1% for each 1%. You get a half a percent. Even private equity funds and hedge funds, the fees are so high and the carried interest and so on that it can work out, but it's tough. I've been in a, a few hedge fund kinds of things that are run by very honest and very smart people. One in particular I won't name. It was a small thing, but the guy is brilliant and doesn't mind telling you how brilliant he is and all that. When he had lost 70% of our money, he finally closed the fund, even though he was he is brilliant and knows more about tech. This, this went back a long time. I actually, if I can give you another example of just how hard this is, I'm in one private equity fund that's been, after about 10 years, it's just winding up, I think. They've had two successes that I really remember. At one point, they said, hey, we're about to distribute you uh, whatever number of shares of Zynga. And I had heard of Zynga. Zynga was this, they've got all the games and the stuff. I'm a words with friends addict, so I knew what Zynga was. Apparently, our basis in Zynga was, I think, six cents or something per share, 
because we were this fund bought a stake back long before it went public, and it was going public at ten. So from six cents to ten dollars, you know, even though we didn't have a, I only had a modest amount, but we had to wait six months before we could sell it. And uh, by the time we were allowed to sell it, it was three or something like that. Okay. So by the way, that's still kind of awesome to go from six cents or whatever it was to three. So I couldn't complain too much, but I was thinking, boy, the next time, if we ever get another one of these distributions or something else, I'm not waiting around. I'm going to, to the extent it's legal, I have to check, but I'm going to short it. If it's legal to short it and lock in my profit. Anyhow, so a couple of years passed and this past summer, we got a notice that there's some company I'd never heard of, a biotech company. We were going to start getting our distribution and it wasn't subject to a, a lockup. We could, the minute we got it, we could sell it. And so I called my friend who runs the fund, who is brilliant when it comes to biotech. And he's the one who discovered this company and, and decided to invest in it and so on. And I said, so what do you think? Are you allowed to give me advice or should I hold it? Should I sell it? Our basis in this one was, I think, $5 a share. And it was like 25. So pretty fantastic. Five times, even though we there were other things that had lost money and so on. But it was, it was great. Uh, he said, you know, it's so hard to know these things. I, he, he held the Zynga himself and saw that same thing happen to him. He said, I had another one where I, I sold it right away and it, it went way up. You, you don't know what to do. It, it's, a, it's a good company, but I'm just going to, I'm selling mine is what he said. And, and so this is the guy who really knows the company. This is the guy who's way, I mean, this is a rich guy and he's made a fortune being smart about these things. So He's selling his. I sold mine. I got about 22, I think. That was great. That was this past August. The stock today, the symbol is A-N-A-B. Stock, I uh, just le- looked, is 106. <laughs> and we sold at 22. <laughs> and this is, right? If it had been up to me, I probably would have sold half mm-hmm. and kept half because I know I don't know anything and I figure I, I'm cautious. But months later, not years later, this is this was August. Now it's so uh, oh, Half a year later, it's 106, and it just reminds me how hard this is. He's brilliant. He really knew the company. He left 600% on the table <laughs> on this thing, yeah. and uh, it, it's, a, it's a tough, tough game. Andy, you know, it's funny. We, we often talk about investors here where there's so many of these emotional behavioral components of shoulda, coulda, woulda. We actually recommend what you mentioned, which is often sell a half or sell a third. That way you sure. never have the entire, you know, emotional wrapped up in something. And despite that advice, so many investors we talk to, they never want to do that though. And we, the, we have the very sophisticated phrase called going halvesies, which is, which is an old kind of adolescent phrase. But those are such fun examples because even in your case of your friend who is very informed, brilliant, wealthy investor, you, you never know with markets. And that's what makes the market so fun. Listen, we got to start winding this down because we only have a few more minutes. I could keep you for a few more hours. We didn't even get into taxes or politics or anything else fun. We'll have to have you back sometime again. But wanted to wrap up with with kind of two more questions. So you've done so much in your career. What, what's got your brain occupied these days? I see you're still blogging, which is awesome. What do you spend most of your time thinking about these days? Or what are you most excited about working on going forward? Well, I'll tell you, and, and I don't mean to sound, <laughs> this is going to make me sound completely lunatic, I guess. But here's what I spend most of my time thinking about and then trying to work toward. 
I, I think about the fact that after 10,000 human generations, or maybe 15,000, because they just discovered some older fossils, I guess, of uh, early Homo sapiens, but 10,000 generations, 20 years of generation, 200,000 years of shivering and suffering and itching and smelling awful and being afraid of saber-toothed tigers and everybody dying so young and the plague and just awful. After 10,000 generations like that, we are suddenly at the moment where everybody listening to this has the most amazing life, better than any czar or emperor or empress or queen or king ever had until maybe 100 years ago. We have air conditioning. We have, you know, as, as much, most of anybody listening to this probably has enough to eat whenever he or she wants. We have magic in our pocket. This little iPhone thing, which has all the world's information and I can I, et cetera, et cetera. I won't take your time going through the whole thing because everybody knows this, but think about it. We can fly and we can watch movies while we fly and we can have dinner while we're watching movies while we fly. And we have 10 or 20 years as a species to get on a sustainable trajectory or else, you know, within 100, 200 years, the planet will still be here and the cockroaches will still be here, but our little species will have disappeared. And there's so much more to say about it. One, one thing that everybody should, if you haven't, is a wonderful book called Homo Deus. Homo erectus is when we learned to stand up. And then Homo sapiens is when we got smart. And now we're Homo sapiens is just about done. Homo Deus is when we become gods of the kind who are jealous and throw things at each other, but have exoskeletons and Google implanted in their brain and can fly. And so read Homo Deus. But we have 10 or 20 years to get this right. And from my point of view, when you have leaders like Barack Obama and Pope Francis and Angela Merkel and uh, whatever, we have a shot. We'll probably hurtle off the rails and go extinct, but we have a shot. And from my point of view, when you have great thinkers like our current president and Putin and some others, it's very concerning. So I spend most of my time trying to help elect Democrats, and that is going to get half the people in your, don't edit that part out. That's going to get half the people in your podcast to uh, unsubscribe. But it's not, it's not your fault. It's my fault. So, something I say in every podcast offends at least half the populace. So don't worry. It's totally fine. So good. That means you're going to be writing a new book called The Only Guide to the Future You'll Ever Need. <laughs> well, I, I write my little daily, I, I, mostly I write emails asking people for money, but it's my highest, best use. I love it. Last question, which we always wind down in with our guests over this cycle, is what has been over your career, this could be good, it could be bad, I mean, if you mentioned it already, that's fine, what's been your most memorable investment or huh. trade? In investment, trade, yeah. whatever whatever you like. Well, there have been so many, and I, I told you about a few of them, so let me, let me tell you one that hasn't happened yet. I mean, we'll, we'll see what, how it turns out. I have several like this, but one that's, that your listeners could actually play with. They can't invest in it, but there's a thing called Brain HQ. And Brain HQ are exercises for your brain. Turns out crossword puzzles don't do any good for you. And Luminosity was fined $200 million by the Federal Trade Commission for making unsubstantiated claims and all that stuff. Brain HQ has more than 100 peer-reviewed studies, but one in particular was a 10-year study of 2,800 people, and 700 of them did crossword puzzles or something, and they no no effect. 700 did nothing, no effect. 700 did 10 hours of brain HQ exercise, 
And 10 years later, the incidence of dementia among this group was 33% lower than the control groups. And the last 700 did 10 hours that first year, and then like a booster shot of, I think, four and a half hours in the third or fourth year. And at the end of the 10 years, the incidence of dementia was down 48%. So, and by the way, it's free, unless you, we hope you'll upgrade and do the whatever it is, $10 a month or something. So I've had an investment in this for 13 years now, never gotten the dime back and may never get anything. But my fantasy is, they haven't done this study, but if, if it has that kind of results, if you just do 10 hours the first year and a little bit the fourth year, what if you did one hour a month for the rest of your life? I think the incidence of dementia goes down. You know, it also makes you sharper and, and auto insurance companies uh, give it away free because they have fewer accidents among their seniors. Tom Brady swears by it. It's part of his... And, and what is the... Actually, not, not to interrupt you, but what is the actual interface? Is it games? Is it puzzles? Is it questions? Is it memorization? Well, you know, it's a bunch of things you have to do on the computer screen or on your mobile phone that are, frankly, not tremendous fun. I love playing words with friends, but I guess it doesn't make me smarter. This is kind of frustrating because I've got to, you got to kind of see where the sheep are and then one of them disappears and you got to remember where it was and it goes faster and faster. And I'm thinking, hey, I'm smart. I always do well in tests. It's very frustrating and annoying, but it's not painful or anything. It's just, I can't honestly tell you it's huge fun. Some people may find it fun, but it's effective. And so my fantasy is imagine, obviously not likely to happen, but imagine if Medicare said to everybody, because it's all computer-based, so they can check on you, say, look, we will pay you $30 an hour or $40 an hour up to 10 or 12 hours a year to do these exercises and we'll know you've done them because it's all on the computer and hooked into our big computer and we won't literally send you a check. We'll just lower your, your Medicare premiums by $30 a month if you, for every month you do this. And suddenly millions of people will say, wow, that's, that's a lot more than I make as a Walmart greeter or, or just sitting here. And if the government's really willing to do this, there must be something to it. I don't want to have dementia. I don't want to become the awful things that happen as you get older. I want to have sharper reflexes. If it's good enough for Tom Brady and he swears by it, he's not old, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. So who knows what will happen? It's hard because it's hard to get people to do exercises. But this is the kind of investment that, first of all, I would, wouldn't mind making 10 or 100 times my money. But it's so exciting to be part of something that could imagine if we could cut the incidence of dementia by 20 or 30 or 40 or 50%. It would be have such uh, an impact on those poor people, on their families and caregivers, on our healthcare budget. And so, yeah, private investing can be interesting and fun. We'll find out whether it can be profitable. I'm, I'm going to download it because, A, my memory is horrific and I'm even worse at crosswords. So I'm actually happy to hear that about the crossword part because that's my world's probably worst skill. <laughs> Andy, where can people follow you? Um, keep updated. What's the best What's the best places? AndrewTobias.com. Simple as that. That's great. We'll post links to all the show notes with, your, with that, Twitter handle, books, etc. Andy, it's been so much fun. Thanks for taking the time today. Thank you. A lot of fun. Listeners, you can always find the show notes. We'll add them at mebfavor.com forward slash podcast. If you like the podcast, hate it, whatever, please leave us a review. And you can always subscribe on iTunes, Castro, Stitcher, Overcast, any of the apps. Thanks for listening, friends, and good investing. Good investing.